Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. We all know people listen to radio and watch television. The difference then between radio and television is the image. When you listen to radio, your mind creates the image for you. When you watch television, a ready-made image is flashed before your eyes. The early days of television were times of great creativity when the questions of how and what should we do were presented at all levels of production, ownership, and programming. In the early 1950s, a young professor from Stanford University named Stanley Donner was creatively engaged in the development of public television in San Francisco, California. In the succeeding 50 years, Professor Donner participated in and followed the development of this vast medium. I met with Professor Stanley Donner in the studios of Radio Curious in September of 1998 to talk about television. Federal Communications uh, Committee was uh, made up of, of all commercial people, uh, people interested in commercial television, except one. And this was a, a woman by the name of, of Frida Hennock, and she was an attorney, and a very bright, strong, powerful woman, and, and uh, no fooling with Frida Hennock at all, uh, because she was, she was called the the Jeanne d'Arc of, of educational television. She was certainly that. She, if it hadn't been for her, I don't think we ever would have gotten on the air except in a few spots in the United States. But she was ever after it and ever getting things done for educators to do, use television. And uh, since I was uh, in charge of the television at Stanford, then uh, I went to conventions and the like. And the, there was an annual one held in Columbus, Ohio. And I went one year, and I think the year probably was 1949 or 50, one of the two, I think. But uh, there was no, no t uh, educational television in San Francisco. And uh, Frida Hennick was one of the people at this convention. And the three or four of us had stayed up till two in the morning just talking with this woman because she's so brilliant and so strong and, and so interested and, and such a passionate woman in terms of education in the United States. It was just a remarkable person. And, and we, we young people were interested in talking to her and just to have somebody that was so excited about the medium as we were. And uh, she turned to me about uh, 2.15 in the morning and said, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Stanford. 
Oh, she said, you must stand for, oh, I'll tell you what you've got to do tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning without fail. I said, what am I to do without fail tomorrow morning? Because <laughs> I began to get scared right away. She said, you've got to, you've got to make application in the name of Stanford University for Channel 9 in San Francisco. Channel 9 in San Francisco. The commercial people are trying to get Channel 9, and they will get it in a matter of days. If you don't act, you've got to do this. I'm sorry, I'd like to help you out, but I can't do that because Stanford is a private university and we, we cannot do public things like this. We, we, we have our own public, our own small public that we serve at the university, but we're not a general institution like the University of California at Berkeley, which is, that's the, that's the place you should go. She said, no, they're not doing anything, and you are. You've got to be the one. I said, I'll lose my job. You won't lose your job. Do it. Do you hear me? Do it. Well, I had a sleepless night. I thought, oh my goodness, if I try to do this, I mean, I might could lose my job. I didn't think I would because I was a very good friend of Wallace, Wally Sterling, who was president. We were good friends. But I sent the, the message off to the, the, the committee and asked that that Channel 9 be reserved for Stanford University for educational television. And I got back to Stanford and went in the president's office and I said, I've done a terrible thing. And I told him what I'd done. He said, oh, look, Stan, you know better. You know better. You can't do this. I said, no, but what we will do, we'll just buy time. If we have a, a month or something, we can probably set some kind of a group of people who will support this and be the real owners or real directors of Channel 9. Since uh, we can't do it, and and Cal is supposedly not that interested at this point. So uh, that's what we want to do. And he said, well, you better work, work fast because this is trouble for us. I said, I understand. And I did start right that very morning. I went to Cal and talked to the people there. And of course, as I thought, they were not interested. But they would be a member of a committee. So I, I went around and I got probably 20 or 30 outfits, uh, if you can call them outfits, uh, schools and universities and colleges all in the Bay Area. And we uh, formed there uh, a Bay Area Television Association. And for a long time, I don't know what's now, but for a long time the Bay Area uh, Television Association were, were the owners, so to speak, of Channel 9. And they were the, the, the early people, the first people to really take uh, power in their own hands. And uh, I think it's still existing, but I'm not au courant at all. So what happened once you got the Bay Area... Say again? What happened once you got the Bay Area Television Association together? How did you get Channel 9 to be a public entity? Well, the first, uh, the first thing they, they did was to try to get a, a, a good person, if they could, uh, as a as a manager of the station, and they got Jim Day, and Jim Day was a marvelous, uh, a marvelous uh, person for that job, and uh, he became uh, well known, especially on the East Coast, for his work in in educational television throughout the nation, uh, and he came and gave a gave a lecture here a, a year ago, I think, and I went down to hear him and to talk with him myself. For, we hadn't seen each other in 20 or 30 years. It was very nice. 
But uh, uh, that's the that's what they did first. And he got the program manager, and uh, then gradually we got somebody to run a camera, and had somebody on the on the switchboard. So bit by bit, the thing began to become a station. And we had a, an old garage on Fifth Street in San Francisco, and that we put up egg crates all around in what we thought was our studio. And uh, well, it was it was kind of primitive, but boy, I think the programs they were doing were quite remarkable. Can you remember some of those programs? Well, Jim Day himself had a, a, a program that I thought was one of the best that I had heard then or now. That he turned out to be just a wonderful guy at doing the kind of thing that you're doing now. He was interviewing people. But he found a, a man who was a longshoreman, and uh, uh, he would be the, the, the least likely person you would think to have on educational television. But he was an extraordinarily well-read person, and Jim Day just talked with him. Just like you and I are talking yeah. now. Was that person Eric Hoffer? Yes, yes, you know him. Oh, you know him too. Yes, he was someone who I interviewed a long time ago. Yes. I remember yes. going to his house because I wanted to talk to him. And oh, I, to Hoffer? Yeah. You went yourself. I called him up and said, can I come over and interview you? And he said, sure, when do you want to do it? And I said, tomorrow. And he said, five o'clock and told me where he lived. <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. You're one of the few people I've run across and, and even known about that. But when I when I saw Jim Day a few months back, I reminded him of the Hoffer series, and he laughed and said, "Yeah, he enjoyed it." But he had the great talent that I think you also have of listening to the to the person being interviewed, because that's hard to do. It's hard to do that. The, each person would like to take control himself and talk himself, and, and you're very quiet. You, you just ask questions, and that's the way Jim Day did. And he was the first one that I knew that uh, did that kind of interviewing. And it's, among the great interviewers, it's, it's, it's done. That's considered to be the way to do it. But the beginning was not that way, <laughs> except by Jim Day. Everybody else was trying to get the own voice on the air and then <laughs> care about the person they were interviewing. That's, that's very kind of you. <laughs> uh, Stan, I'm interested in the theory of communication. You were a communications professor yes. for many years. Yes. What were some of the different issues that you brought out and shared with your students? Well, the my first uh, thing with uh, 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 teaching anything about communication uh, at Stanford or at the University of Texas in Austin was to start with the theory of communication. And the theory of communication uh, consists roughly of two, two parts. One part is just how to do it. How do you do it? How do you communicate? And uh, the other part of it is what are the, what are the disasters? What are the damages? What are the things that go wrong? What are the things that are that are not really they're anti-communications? The kinds of things that uh, talk to us about some of those. Pardon? Tell us about some of those. Oh, anti-communication. Well, the, I think our our uh, late uh, president 
uh, was, was a master at that, of, of, of putting out information that was not... Ronald Reagan? Sir? Ronald Reagan? No. Uh, his, his Nixon. Who? Nixon. This is a guessing game. It sounds like you're talking about Richard Nixon? Yes, Richard Nixon. Uh, he was a master at, at, uh, at what I would call non-communication or or it could be called a, a interference in communication. There's a, a, probably that's what an a engineer would say. We're getting interference now. But there's a way of communicating in which you're not really communicating. You're trying to do exactly the opposite. You're trying not to communicate. And uh, so uh, there are people, and I think President Nixon was one of them, who could do this with great skill. I'd like to take a moment and say that my guest this week is Professor Stanley Donner. We're talking about the history of public television in California, and at the moment about President Richard Nixon's skill at not communicating. You're listening to Radio Curious on World Radio. I'm Barry Vogel. Dan, could you give us an example of what you mean by that? Well, well, uh, when when uh, uh, President Nixon was uh, uh, rapidly moving toward disaster himself because of things that he had done, I think some of them unwittingly perhaps, but, but uh, he was then trying to, uh, well, cover his tracks, so to speak. And uh, he did that in many times by just non-communication. Uh, there was, uh, uh, of course, you mentioned pr uh, President Reagan. Uh, he did some of that by by appearing not to remember. As he said often, well, I just don't remember that, he would say. And he's quite persuasive as a communicator himself, quite good. But he would use the communication then as a non-communication. He just simply said, I don't remember. Well, if you don't remember, then you can't report on it. So that was a pretty good way to do it if you're going to want to be a non-communicator. So there are skills of that kind, there are anti-skills, if you call them, wanted to call them that, that uh, have to do with not communicating. Uh, we were not trying to teach our students not to communicate. We were trying to teach them to communicate. But they had also to see what non-communication was. And then uh, there were about uh, uh, 13, I think 12 or 13 uh, ways in which uh, communication can go wrong. It, uh, where we were, uh, for example, not right now, and we're on the air, so the mechanical and electronic things have to operate in order for us to do it, to, the, to do this. And it's quite remarkable, as we all know, that we can do this. But uh, uh, it's, it's also one of the difficulties, because things can go wrong. You can lose your power, you can... You can uh, uh, well, power is the most important thing in, in trying to broadcast, because you have all other kinds of things that are anti-communication things or things that cause disaster in communication. I think uh, we had uh, one man at, the, at Stanford who uh, was, was his field almost of, of anti-communication, and uh, he had he had 11 steps or 11 methods or 11 things that normally happen. And I attended his lecture and copied down the 11. I thought they were so wonderful. And I used his 11 
things that were giving him credit uh, for lectures later on because I thought he had he had narrowed the thing and gotten it uh, so one could handle it. Can you tell us what some of those eleven are? Oh well. Well, uh, a, a simple one would be what was happening to us before we went on the air. We were having some problems with getting the, the our volume of your voice and my voice uh, to be balanced. And that's a mechanical one, but that's one. The mechanical thing has got to be operative. That's, that's one. Then the intention of the, of the communicator is the other. That's when we were talking about uh, uh, President Nixon and President Reagan. What was their intention? What were they trying to communicate? Were they trying to communicate or not? What they were they were not communicating. Was that due to some something as extraneous, some uh, thing that they didn't even know they were doing, or something that was happening to them at the time, or something they didn't wish to communicate for maybe uh, maybe national or international reasons? It could be that. I yeah. find on that level. Uh, listening to politicians, uh, they'll often give out information with total disregard of what the question is. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. That would be another wonderful example of the same same thing that I'm trying to talk about. Yes, and the people get skillful at this. Where you ask them one thing and they don't answer it, they answer another. I remember talking with uh, William Rehnquist. In Ooh. William Rehnquist, he's now the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Oh yes, yes, I do. And this know. this was in um, at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, yes. in the spring of 1971, when Nixon was in a great deal of trouble himself, yes. and college campuses were uh, asking a lot of questions about Nixon and about the Vietnam War. So at that time, William Rehnquist was the assistant United States Attorney General, and he came to Brown University, and I just happened to be on campus that day, and he was talking, uh, supposed to talk about uh, what was going on in Southeast Asia, but instead he was just talking about literature and flowers and books, and when people would try to point, uh, pin him down and press him on questions, he'd make a hundred percent eye contact, uh, shake their hand, and talk about literature and flowers and how nice it is to be at Brown and Providence. But he never once asked the question, even when we challenged him uh -huh. on the fact that the question was this and he was answering in a total disregard. Yes. Uh -huh. in, in the most sincere persona. Yes. Well, this would be considered to be a, a, a communication failure. And, and intentional uh, failure. Inten intentional. But uh, I remember at the University of Texas, I got down on my knees on one lecture. Uh, big classes there, about 500 students. I got down on my knees and, and talked with, with Phoebe, uh, who was in one of the, the, the books where she worried about the, the d uh, ducks in, in, in uh, Central Park when it, when it came winter and the pond froze, what happened to the ducks? And so Phoebe and I talked about this, but what I was trying to illustrate to the students is that age has a lot to do with this too. She was, I think uh, Phoebe was six, and she was a bright six-year-old, all right, 
but she wasn't a mature six-year-old, so, I mean, the mature woman yet. So uh, I was trying to illustrate just that kind of communication. It's very important it, it, with children as your teacher. Uh, how do you communicate? How do you get the, the people really to respond? Because that's very hard to do, really, as a teacher. Because uh, many times in the high school, for example, the students are actually trying not to learn. They've got their, all their barriers up, and some way you've got to get them to take those down so, so you can have a, a communication flow. They can talk back to you, you can talk to them, and they have a, re, a response like that. But that's difficult. Well, right? how do you take those barriers down? How do you develop that communication flow? Well, you have to know in the first place that they're there, and then you've got to learn about why they're there. Who is, who is profiting by this event? If it's the, if the kids at school, and high school level, it, it probably means that they are not themselves, they're shutting themselves off. So that's a, in itself a small disaster, I think. But also, it's making the teacher impossible to teach. She can't do what she's there to do. And so, so you reach a deadlock. And, uh, that's a very hard thing. You see it happen also in the Congress of the United States. They're, they're doing this kind of thing. This kind of thing is happening, probably purposefully. Not, it's not an inadvertent thing there at all. It's well planned in advance. Well, for example, filibuster is, is a way of, of occupying the, uh, the airtime, so to speak, in Congress, so another congressman can't use it. So he'll uh, filibuster, oh, sometimes... 24 hours, 48 hours, or go on 72 hours. As long as they can continue talking, they have the floor. Yeah. That's uh, wonderful. Well, Stan, um, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, and before I ask you the question about the book that you know I'm going to ask, um, I'd like to ask you about the future of communications. The future? The future of electronic communications. You've been involved in the history of them and the develop the hands-on development of them. What do you speculate will be the future? <laughs> I, I think I'd tell you about my last lecture at the University of Texas in Austin, which had happened in 1976. And my last lecture was on computers. And of course, IBM had, had the big computer out by then, and the, the original one filled a whole room like this studio with nothing but equipment just to, for, for one computer. And uh, so I was telling the students that I thought that this computer business was not going to succeed in the United States, that it was a sudden flare-up and we would not hear of it at all in two or three years. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it spread throughout the whole United States and every family and every every business everywhere, the computer. But I'm sure you have some ideas about where the future of uh, electronic communication, radio and television and telephones, uh, where they will take us. Oh, uh, that I, that'd just be sure conjecture. I don't I don't really know, uh, uh, and. I don't know. I just have to say I don't know. Uh, having made the great gaffe on computers, I feel a little inadequate because I was telling everybody it was the end of it right then. 
And that was 1976. Well, Stanley Donner, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before yeah, we close, I, I would like to ask you uh, to tell us about an interesting book. Yes, well, <clears throat> there's a, a book that, uh, that I, I, I'm having a vision problems, so I get people to read to me, and this book is being read to me, and it's called the the fox and the, <clears throat> the the fox and the and the hedgehog, and the the fox and the hedgehog really comes from Greek times or somewhere uh, in that distance, because uh, the the. The fox has thousands of options. Uh, he's quick, he's fast, he knows where to head, he knows what to do. He, he's one of the remarkable animals of all time. And the hedgehog, hedgehog au contraire, has is, is only one thing, that he knows how to get back in the, in the hedge and hide. And I'd never even seen one of those until a year ago, and I almost stepped on, on a hedgehog in a, in a really wet, rainy night, and my son, Marco pulled me back so I didn't step on him. <laughs> but uh, they're so different in, in, in the, the way they approach things and their, their abilities. So uh, that's what this book is about. It's the hedgehog or the fox. And the, the question has to do with Dostoevsky, the, the uh, writer. And is he a hedgehog or is he a, a, a hedgehog? Is he a hedgehog or a fox? And, and that's what, what the book is about. And what's the answer? <laughs> well, my answer to it is he's, he's a fox. But I, I haven't read all of Dostoevsky, and I haven't read all of his book to see what uh, Isaiah Berlin says. But uh, it's an interesting approach to, to stuff like this, I think. Well, Stanley, I understand that you're leaving on a trip for France uh, tomorrow. Yes. And uh, we wish you well and hope that uh, we can visit again when you return. Well, thank you. I look forward to it myself. I'm enjoy I've enjoyed our meeting together a lot. Thank and you. Thank you for having me. Professor Stanley Donner was one of the organizers of public television in San Francisco, California in the early 1950s. The book he recommends is The Hedgehog and the Fox, an essay on Tolstoy's view of history by Sir Isaiah Berlin. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org. And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707 621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.